This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Language, a channel of the New Books Network podcast. This is Madhumanti, and today I'll be talking to Professor Harry van der Hulst, a professor of linguistics at the University of Connecticut. And we'll be talking about his book, A Mind for Language, An Introduction to the Innateness Debate, published in 2023 by the Cambridge University Press. Hello and welcome, Professor van der Hulst. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so today we'll be talking about your book, uh, A Mind for Language and Introduction to the Innateness Debate. So if we can start with the very title and the words we see in the title, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what is the innateness debate and how does it relate to language and the human mind? Okay, yeah. So linguists have long uh, concluded um, that it is actually a miracle that that young children learn language so fast. In just a couple of years, children become um, fluent speakers, um, barring medical conditions, of course. Um, They don't get formal instruction in language. They are being spoken to, obviously. And um, linguists, um, under the influence of famous linguist Noam Chomsky have come to agree that it is really um, a mystery uh, how children do it and why they do it so fast. Um, For Chomsky, this led to the idea that perhaps children come to um, our world prepared to learn human language. They have, so to speak, and that's the title of the book, a mind for language. They come prepared with something in their minds that uh, instructs them, guides them to uh, go from the language utterances that they hear to constructing in their minds a grammar for the language that they uh, are exposed to. So um, this brings us to the term innateness debate. Uh, The way that Chomsky put it was children, uh, humans, but children have an innate capacity uh, for language, to acquire language. So that doesn't mean that they come equipped with the full language because then all humans would speak the same language. They come equipped with with almost, you could say, a mental instruction manual to uh, process the, the languages, the language utterances that they hear and then extract the grammatical rules, uh, the rules about the sound structure, the meaning, and, and thus, you know, in a few years become 
uh, you know, fluent speakers of the language. So there is debate about that because there are many uh, linguists and psychologists and philosophers who would argue that children can do this because uh, humans in general have very powerful learning capacities that they apply to everything that they are exposed to and also language. So the debate here is whether there is an innate capacity that is uh, specific to language um, and or not. So um, that's the debate. And what I do in the book is um, I go through the various arguments that uh, linguistics uh, has produced to support this, uh, it, what we call the innateness hypothesis for language. But also I give uh, room to people who argue against it. So basically, uh, I'm not trying to sell a particular point of view. I'm trying to, um, as I put it, educate the reader to become an informed participant in this debate. And then another aspect of the way that I present this is um, I question how do uh, children uh, acquire language and is there a role for innateness? And of course, there is a role for the input that they get. Uh, I point out that this is actually an instance of the, the infamous nature-nurture debate. And that debate has been uh, around for a long time, forever. Uh, and it can be applied to all sorts of other uh, capacities of humans. Um, we can talk about that later if you want. So um, when I teach using this book, I say the big topic is actually that nature-nurture debate. But to make it concrete, and because I'm a linguist, we will use language as a case study for this particular debate. So you could say we are talking about the nature and nurture of language. I think that that's um, a, a fair characterization of the book. There are a number of arguments um, that could be made that I uh, I did not have room in this book to discuss. So there is going to be a sequel volume where I uh, discuss additional uh, further arguments, uh, and they're always showing the pro and the con uh, of this this uh, Chomskyan idea that that there is an innate capacity for language. Is that? I see. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. So so let's actually um, talk about some of the things that you mentioned. Um, you mentioned that this nature nurture debate basically um, goes back a long time in history, and you also mentioned that this also extends outside of the purview of language and linguistics to other areas of human cognition and human behavior. So so if if you could uh, elaborate on those points. Yeah, um, in, indeed. Um, so this this nature nurture debate is is uh, has a long history. Uh, and in fact, the way I have a chapter in the book where I trace it back to the earliest philosophical works uh, by by Greek philosophers, we often go back to Greek philosophers where one could say um, that, for example, the philosopher Plato was on the side of the role of nature, that human knowledge, he wasn't just talking about language, he was talking about how do people come to know what they know in general. And according to Plato, people know uh, a lot, maybe everything, uh, even you know from scratch, from birth. Um, his star pupil, Aristotle, uh, didn't 
buy into that idea. And so Aristotle was on the side of nurture. Aristotle said that, you know, humans acquire knowledge based on experience. They are exposed through their senses, seeing, hearing, feeling, and, or, you know, touching and all uh, that, that gives information to uh, humans from, from birth. And given, he admitted that, given that humans have a innate, very general learning capacities, uh, that would be sufficient uh, to explain how humans come to know what they know, how they come to know how to behave. So the the debate starts, you could say, with the Greek philosophers, and 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 in other philosophical traditions, uh, we find uh, as you know as far back to the earliest writings that that this issue has come up, and then through the millennia, uh, this issue keeps being discussed. Um, and uh, so, in some sense, uh, when you look at the the history of linguistics or maybe psychology, especially in the United States, there. There was a period in the 20th century that a lot of emphasis was put on um, the nurture side of how people learn things, including language. And then in the 50s, uh, 60s, uh, Noam Chomsky um, pushed back on that and, and put that idea on the table that uh, when it comes to language, um, it is almost, uh, in his view, it was almost impossible to uh, to understand how children learn language without proper instruction, unless they 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 come equipped with sort of mental instructions. So uh, there is a long line of uh, this debate uh, with instances in other fields than linguistics. Obviously, people have asked questions about uh, our our mathematical knowledge. Is there do we do humans have a math instinct? If you if you go to Amazon and you Google instinct, you find a whole list of books that have been written over the last couple of decades where people ask, uh, often they then refer to instincts, where instinct stands for, you know, innate knowledge, innate information about how to behave. Um, and there are multiple books about whether people's moral sense has an innate basis, whether Parenting has an innate basis, whether our mathematical skills have an innate basis. So people have uh, asked this question, sometimes stimulated by how Chomsky put it on the table for language. Uh, and there is also a, a very readable and famous book uh, called The Language Instinct by uh, linguist Stephen Pinker. Uh, so, yeah, it's general. It is. It goes back far in time, as far as we can see, actually, from the written record. And if we shift to our contemporary situation, um, the, the nature-nurture debate comes up a lot. I, I tend to say that there isn't a week that, that will go by without an article appearing somewhere, a book even. Uh, so some people find the debate um, stale, and they say, uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't continue debating it or they feel maybe that there is a, a way out of this debate, but um, it doesn't seem to uh, end and it goes on and people keep being interested in it. And one point that I'm trying to make with the book is also that it isn't in fact a debate that is just about language, even though I use that as a case study, 
it is a very general debate. And when I talk about this material to students, I uh, give them examples of how this debate comes up in daily life, um, uh, even at that age of student age, but certainly later also in life. Um, it comes up a lot. So it is good to be informed about that. And a lot of the pro and con arguments that, that I discuss with respect to language can extra, extra can be extrapolated to other fields as well. So um, in that sense, uh, people don't only become an in informed about the nature-nurture debate in language, but actually about the nature-nurture debate in general. Is that? Right, okay. Uh, so we will zoom in on like the, the language aspect of the innateness debate but um if we could if we could like just briefly because you mentioned the different sides of this debate um if we could briefly talk about what will the arguments look like for language acquisition from the different sides of this debate so what would be so you mentioned about like chomsky's ideas about language learning and how he says it's a complete wonder so so what will uh, the explanation for that be from the other side of the debate yeah, so that um, Chomsky himself uh, emphasized a particular uh, argument that uh, came to be known as the poverty of the stimulus argument. Uh, what does that mean? Um, Chomsky had decent, uh, deep knowledge of uh, of language, of language structure, um, um, and he was, of course, not the only one. But it is important that we. Uh, mention the fact that that uh, a question about um, how do children learn language has to take into account actually how complex language is, how complex the knowledge is that children seem to have when they become you know fluent speakers. So the poverty of the stimulus argument is that um, here stimulus means the input, that children get, the, the sentences that are spoken to them, that's the input. And Chomsky referred to that input as poor, meaning that, um, you know, if the input was supposed to be, uh, contain all the information that children need to, to learn language, uh, you wouldn't have to postulate an innate uh, capacity. But he showed, and other people have confirmed, that languages have such in intricate properties uh, not only in terms of their sentence structure, which is what Chomsky worked on mostly, but also in other aspects, the semantic, the meaning structure, the phonological or sound structure. Um, there is a lot of things that that you need to know in order to, to be a speaker that is not at all so clear uh, or so easy to extract from just being exposed to sentences. Sentences have a rich structure and hierarchical structure, uh, what you hear as input, what children hear, is just a stream of sound. Uh, the first problem is how do children actually divide that stream of sound into words? How do they divide the words into speech sounds? Uh, how do they figure out what these words mean? How do they figure out how the words relate to each other in what we call the syntactic structure? So when prior to Chomsky uh, in psychology in a in a um a form of psychology that was called behaviorism um yeah people made claims uh, 
behaviorist made, made claims how, how children can learn language in, in a trial and error process. But it has to be said that, um, and I, you know, not that these people didn't know what they were doing, perhaps, but that the knowledge of language specifically that these people had was simply not sufficient to even address this question. Uh, it's very tempting to say that children learn words because they there is a cat coming into the room. They say cat and the parent says, that's good. That's good. So they learn the word cat and that children in that. And if they would say dog, then the parents would say, no, that's not right. Uh, it's very tempting, perhaps, to to think that languages are learned in that way, trial and error with correction. But that's just not how it works. And language is just too complex for that. And then there are additional arguments that that suggest that children actually have the capacity to almost, one could say, create the language that they are speaking. They, they infer uh, from the input um, things, obviously, because without input, a child will not start speaking. We can, we can talk about that. There are sad examples of that. But the, the child is constructing the language uh, uh, in, in their mind um, based on the stimulus that, according to Chomsky, is poor, and the structure that they create in their mind, which we call a mental grammar, is rich and in structure is is complex actually, and um, and again it seems like there has to be a bridge between the 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 stimulus that the child receives, and and the rich knowledge that is uh, formed by the child. So, um, and as I said, there are additional arguments. There uh, is something that is called the critical period. For learning, which maybe you have a question about later, we can come back to that. But but here's the core, um, this poverty of the stimulus idea that children don't get instructed to language. Parents don't even know what the rules of language are. Uh, the knowledge that people have of the rules of language, unless they are linguists, they may know a little more. Knowledge that people have is, is very shallow and often even wrong. So parents May, they may think they correct their children sometimes. Some linguists who study language acquisition would argue that correction actually has very little impact. So basically, these kids do it on their own. And they do it based on input that is just not perfect. Um, and nevertheless, they become, uh, in, by definition, they become perfect speakers of the language. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right. So we will come back to the poverty of stimulus arguments and, and discuss them in more detail. But before that, let's let's try to understand the notion of mental grammar a little better so that maybe we can also understand the poverty of stimulus arguments better. So what is the nature of this mental grammar? What What is mental grammar? Is it some sort of a general computational efficiency that humans come with or 
is it more like actual rules or principles that are specific to human linguistic competence and performance? So, so how do we actually structure it? So you discuss this in a lot of detail in chapter six. So if we could talk about that. Yeah, so it, it is, you can think of it as a grammar. So if you, if you, uh, you know, try to learn a language later in life, uh, you buy a grammar book uh, or you you are in a class that uses a grammar book and the grammar book will inform you uh, what are the sounds of the language. It often starts that way. What are the sounds of the language? Sometimes in conjunction with how things are being spelled. But spelling is, while very important, not an intrinsic part of that mental grammar. But you have to know what, what are the sounds of language, uh, what we call the phonemes. Uh, you have to know how those phonemes can occur in combination to actually give you a word that is well-formed, because not every combination of, of the vowels and the consonants that are relevant for a language uh, form a combination uh, that is actually a possible word. Um, so there are units that have to be learned, like phonemes. There are rules that have to be learned, how they combine. And this um, applies at all three levels of words and sentences. Words have a sound structure, words have a meaning structure, and words have uh, what we call uh, a labeling, that is to say words are nouns or verbs or adjectives. Um, and the same applies to sentences. I mean, that's how I explain it in that chapter six, that sentences also have three layers. There is a sound structure, there is a meaning structure, and there is a, a structure that uses those those word labels like noun and verb to construct a syntactic structure. So for all three of these layers, there are units that uh, are like the basis. And then there are combinatorial rules that tell you how uh, they can be combined. And sometimes there are also rules that make further modifications when words are combined. Uh, so yeah, it is, people call it a computational system, but it it is a system of uh, units and rules, combinatory rules. And um, that that is in fact also, if you have a, a decent or good or extensive grammar book, when you learn a language, you also hope to find what are the phonemes, what are the sounds. Uh, implicitly, you learn what the well-formed combinations are of these phonemes by being confronted with only words that are actually well-formed. Uh, you learn things about word structure that what we mean here is that sometimes words consist of different parts that have their own meaning, like like uh, readable consists of read and able. So all languages have rules that allow you to add words to the inventory uh, using these um, what we call affixes like able or re, 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 read. Um, again, there are rules there. Uh, uh, there are constraints because you can't just combine these units in any way you like. Um, then you move up to the sentence. Words are the basic units there. They have to be combined into larger units that we call phrases and sentences. So yeah, the, the mental grammar is a rich system with different, what we call modules, different parts. Uh, and and to bring it down to its essentials, there have to be there has to be a submodule module that is about the sound structure. There has to be a sub-module that is about the meaning structure. And then there is a sub-module that is about the 
what we call the syntax, the way that word labels like noun, verb, adjective, preposition are being combined. So yes, you can think of it as a computational system in the sense that there are rules that that uh, um, combine these units in a, in a specific way. And obviously when linguists uh, model the mental grammar, uh, because we actually can't observe it directly, um, they try to make that system as elegant and, and concise as possible. But yeah, think of it as a grammar book that, that sits inside your head. But when a child starts with language, uh, the grammar book is largely empty. You can think of it as a workbook, like when you go to a class and you get a workbook and some information in that workbook in that word uh, book is already specified. But as you listen to the professor, you have to add information to it. So that's another way to think of that innate system as a workbook that has information pre-specified in it. Um, and it and then the learner, the child, uh, being exposed to an to uh, languages, uh, to a language could be multiple, uh, has to complete that workbook and turn it into a complete a grammar. And that's what we then call the mental grammar. Mm -hmm. So what is the nature of those instructions that already exist in that workbook? So essentially, what is what is contained, already contained within that uh, that innate capacity that uh, we come with. Also from the perspective of, um, so you talk about universal grammar, which is some aspect of mental grammar, a specific cognitive module that's shared by speakers of all languages. But then there are thousands of languages and when we look at them from the surface, they seem to be very different from one another. They also tend to show a lot of variation in their properties and in their grammar. So how do we reconcile the ideas of universal grammar or the instructions that are already there in the workbook and the variation that we see in the grammars of different languages? Yeah, so good question. So yeah, Chomsky came to refer to that innate system uh, as universal grammar, UG. Um, it's a bit of a medieval name. Uh, it could also be misleading because it could suggest that it's the grammar that covers all the languages mm -hmm. so that children don't have to learn anything. But as I said, if, if the innate capacity would uh, be a fully specified mental grammar already, then all people would speak the same language, which is not the case. So that innate system... Uh, is, you could say, under-specified. It doesn't tell the child everything about the language that she is exposed to. But it, it one way that people have also put it is that perhaps that, that, um, that innate manual specifies a, a set of expectations about what a child could expect with respect to uh, how languages are structured. Um, so, for example, the fact that, that words... Uh, consist of smaller building blocks that we call phonemes, could be one of those expectations. The fact in, that when children hear, hear an utterance uh, that parents speak to them, that it is actually something that has to be broken down in smaller parts called words. The idea that these words are not just a linear string of information unit, but these words enter into a hierarchical structure. Um, and that's important because sometimes you could have a sentence that uh, has a certain string of words, like, you know, I hit the man with the stick. Well, that 
sentence could actually mean two things. Uh, it could mean that the man had a stick and I hit him, or it could mean that I hit the man with a stick. Maybe not a friendly sentence, but sentences that, you know, apparently have the same string of words can have different, what we call syntactic structures, which then reflect different meanings. Well, these are things that may not be obviously, uh, may not be obvious to a child, and the child comes to language with expectations uh, sometimes they're called principles of language that, that would apply to all languages uh, that the child doesn't have to figure out for herself. Um, but then, as you were indicating, obviously, uh, we have a lot of different languages. And, uh, you know, people say that even today, there may be some 7,000 languages around, um, many of which are endangered. That's a whole other thing that we could talk about. So, how does the idea of universal grammar explain the fact that there are so many differences between languages? Well, it was another idea that that came up in the, in the discussion uh, since the sixties and seventies. Is that that innate manual? It could it could stipulate what are called principles, things that hold true for all languages. That in all languages, words are organized into a hierarchical syntactic structure that in all languages, words are composed of these things called phonemes. Uh, but then there's variation. Uh, but it is not the case that languages vary from each other without limits. So that's a thing that linguists had to figure out by comparing languages. There seem to be limitations on the diversity. So here was another idea that came up that in that innate manual, there could be choices that a child has to make. Um, whether when you combine a verb with an object like drink water, whether the order is I drink water or whether the order is I water drink and languages differ in that way. Um, so the idea was that this innate grammar could consist in addition to those principles that hold true for all languages, uh, choices, and th these were called parameters. So the choice would be out there for the child. Uh, like if you have a verb and an object, the order could be verb object or object verb. Uh, and the child would then decide for the language that she is exposed to, which order applies to that language. So you can almost think of those parameters as multiple choice questions. Um, and uh, so now, all that being said, there is of course the question, what are all these parameters? How many are there? What are the principles? How many are there? And this idea of innateness has been around for, you know, since the late 50s, uh, 1960s, and that is a long time, <laughs> you know, 60, 70 years. And obviously, or perhaps not obvious, but we're talking about a science, so things are never static. So ideas evolve and develop. And there is discussion uh, among linguists uh, about, is this a parameter? Is this a principle? And I will say that Chomsky himself has uh, changed his mind over the last 60 years uh, considerably. Initially, his idea was that this universal grammar is very rich in structure, has a lot of information in it. And over the years, he has come to reduce what he thinks is in there. And um, so currently, his idea is that perhaps one of the most fundamental principles of that system is that when we form sentences, uh, there are mechanisms to 
put one sentence into another sentence, like I saw that Mary fell. Um, and this trick, which is called recursion, uh, can be applied again and again. John told me that he heard that Mary fell. So in principle, you can put sentence in sentence in sentence, and that gives rise to language having the flavor of infinity. There is no longer sentence. You could go on and on. Uh, it might become unclear for whoever you are speaking to or even in your own mind. But in principle, there is this trick that allows, um, and, and in particular, this has been applied to the structure of sentences, the syntactic structure. There is this trick to, while having finite means, just a bunch of words and, and rules, the output, the, the possibilities are infinite. So what I'm saying is there, so when you ask, so what's in that UG? Well, you know, to some extent that depends on who you talk to. And it also depends on whether you talk to that person when, when he was young or when he was, you know, later in his career. Uh, it's an ongoing debate. Uh, it's not just a debate between the, the, let's say, proponents of an innate aspect for language as opposed to people who uh, say it's all general learning. But even within the innateness camp, you could say there is debate about uh, how rich is that system um, and there is, an, there is a certain trend, uh, as I indicated, uh, toward, uh, toward minimizing uh, what we actually have to put in there. And perhaps uh, with that, uh, there is a lot of discussion going on uh, how aspects of language, aspects of that mental grammar could, could be the result of other factors. And indeed, there is a, there is a convergence between the uh, proponents of general learning capacities and the proponents of innateness, because uh, I think the proponents of innateness have come on board with the idea that language, uh, language is constructed, the mental grammar, also using general learning capacities that that may go beyond language as such. So um, I try to answer the question sort of in general terms. There are principles, there's parameters, um, but there is a lot of debate going on uh, um, in, in the linguistic field. Okay, so uh, moving on to some of the other issues that you mentioned in the later chapters. Um, so in chapter 11, you talk about critical period effects in language acquisition. Uh, so what are critical period effects? So is it important to receive input of a particular language within a certain age or within a certain time of your life in order to gain native-like skills? And what happens if you do not get any language input uh, within a certain age? Yeah, that, that's a very uh, interesting uh, and much debated part of this, this innateness debate. Um, there, is the, there is the observation that I mentioned earlier on uh, that children acquire this mental grammar, the ability to be a language user uh, in a few years. And and it's all children are, again, barring medical conditions, all children are equally good at it. Um, so uh, some somebody once compared it to growing hair, you know, all people, babies grow hair, and they don't have to put any specific effort in it. They don't they don't do it because their parents have hair. But you know, it's a spontaneous biological process of maturation. So 
Then there is a second observation that if later in life, if if you are an adult or even past puberty, when you know we we enter adulthood, learning a new language is seems to be a little harder. It doesn't seem to be the case that uh, learning a later language uh, is equally uh, effortless. And um, so, but that has led to people saying that maybe there is a critical period for language. And the notion of critical period is very common in the animal kingdom at large. There are lots of examples where other animal species uh, learn a certain type of behavior or will expose it, uh, will show a certain type of behavior, but only if they have been exposed to certain triggers uh, within a certain time frame. If the trigger comes too late, they don't seem to be able to display that behavior or not perfectly. So this contrast between first language acquisition and later language acquisition has led to the idea that perhaps there is a critical period for building up a language that children have to be exposed to input, uh, you know, from day one, if possible, uh, for a certain period, and then they can do it. But if the input comes too late, uh, let's say after puberty, but there's even evidence that 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 even earlier uh, input can be marked as late, uh, then learning is less perfect, and there may be differences in terms of the learning of the sound system or the syntactic system. But so, yeah, um, there is seems to be a, a critical period. And if that is true, then that suggests uh, uh, that, the, that there is an innate capacity for language. That is a part of our biology. Um, and again, making the comparison with the same kind of effects elsewhere in the animal kingdom, where, where you know, people who study animal behavior have long concluded that that if there is such an effect, then we have to assume that, um, that there is an innate um, piece of information that, that has to be triggered uh, within a certain time frame. And people have observed this with respect to birdsong uh, in particular. And so um, the, the problem is, I mean, if we learn language later in life, maybe the circumstances are not always precisely the way they are when we learn language early in life, because, uh, but be that as it may, um, I mean, I've, I've, I'm Dutch originally, so Dutch is my language. And I started learning uh, English in high school in, in, when, in the Netherlands, and then I moved to the States and I've been, you know, I use English on a daily basis. Um, and, um, but nevertheless, I I make grammatical mistakes sometimes systematically, and my own children will point that out to me. Um, so, my I, after all these years of using uh, English da in daily life, uh, there are certain aspects. I mean, think about my pronunciation of the sounds. I speak with an with an with an accent, as people say. Um, so, yeah, there seems to be. I mean, a child, sometimes people say, if a young child is adopted in, in a country where there is another language, uh, they will pick up that new language, and they're not going to speak that language with an accent, even if they're natural parents, or um, in a case of just migration of a whole family. So there is there seems to be something about that learning a language later in life is is can leave certain traces. In, in, in the ability. And of course that can differ from between individuals. Some people will be more persistent and others work harder on it. But yes, 
uh, this this critical period effect exists and people are debating how long is that critical period uh, um, when 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 does this the innate system start shutting down so to speak uh, there's debate about that and and um, as i said it could differ with respect to which part of grammar we talk about the sound structure etc but so that's that i think generally is is taken to be uh, a solid point for assuming uh, that there is indeed, you know, part of our genetic makeup uh, gives rise to neural structures in the brain that that uh, facilitates the process of acquisition. And, you know, in the normal case, uh, so to speak, what we will see, of course, our world has changed a lot, but when you go back you know, many uh, millennia, it was, people would grow up in one language and that, so five, six years is kind of sufficient. So why would the brain hang on to, to circuitry that is no longer used, can be used for something else? So it makes a certain amount of sense that there is a, a, a critical period. Okay, so uh, we discussed the acquisition of a second language after a certain stage in life. Um, you also discuss in your book some uh, very unfortunate cases, actually, of of um, late acquisition or situations where there was no input received for any language whatsoever until until a certain stage in life. So, so what happens if first language acquisition is to happen late? Yeah. So it. It is indeed the case that that if a child is not exposed to language uh, early on and for a certain period of time, is extremely detrimental. I mean, that language doesn't bubble up spontaneously. So that is a fact. So it's not that language is completely innate. I mean, some other animal species, whatever communication system they use, uh, it's there kind of from the start, uh, there may be a little bit of development, but in other species, uh, um, one could actually argue that whatever communication system they have, the ability to to have that is, is completely innate, but not for humans. So we need that nurture. And if it doesn't come, uh, language doesn't come. And if the input would only come so late that one is past that critical period, language may never come or never come uh, in a in a complete way. And yeah, there are indeed sad cases uh, in every class, in every textbook that deals with language acquisition. There is this famous case of a, uh, a young girl that came to be known as Jeannie. Uh, and this is a very tragic case. Uh, an evil father uh, prevented her from having language input for until she was like 13, when she was actually by accident was discovered or, uh, and um, she had hardly any language, a few words. Uh, and for many years after that, um, she was on the one hand, an object of study. And on the other hand, she was somebody who needed rehabilitation. And uh, so linguists worked with her, psychologists, and it would seem that her language ability uh, never, uh, whatever ability was left or however she uh, um, was exposed to input, she heard, she not she didn't become fluent by any measure. And uh, her sentences were short and didn't show uh, like the kind of syntactic structure that we normally would expect. So um, yeah, so the fortune, I mean, there are more, 
tragic cases like that than you, than, than you would want. There on the internet, of you course. can find other examples of this kind of uh, language deprivation. And an, an, a special case that I would mention is that um, if children are born deaf, uh, and you know only like around 5% of deaf children, children who are born deaf actually have a deaf parent, um, so many deaf children are born in, in hearing families, and it can then happen, despite the best efforts of parents, that, that children, uh, those deaf children don't get sign language input for some time. Um, and that uh, even in a much shorter period of time, like two or three years, of, of, uh, can already be bad in the sense that um, um, the, the the ability to use sign language might not be perfect in all aspects of the grammar. There's a lot of case studies on that. Um, so what this actually shows is that it's very important if children are born deaf uh, and parents want to um, acknowledge that, uh, that the children get sign language input as quickly as possible. And um, parents might actually, you know, quickly uh, learn some sign language, and that already helps. And here's another remarkable fact, because then when children like that are exposed to signing that is not perfect, because parents have just learned some of it, children, deaf children actually go beyond what the input that they get, which is another indication that they have uh, internal instructions to to how to build up the grammar, in this case, for a sign language. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little more about that. So um, you also discuss this in Chapter 12, where you talk about children going beyond the input that they receive, both from the perspective of sign language and from the perspective of Creoles, like spoken language and sign language both. So, um, yeah, could you could you um, tell yeah, us a little bit about that? This is an argument that, that, um, that people like, and it has, has a convincing uh, ring to it that there are these types of languages that have come to be called pidgin languages. So when when people uh, who speak different languages are kind of thrown together in a situation, a longer time situation, uh, they want to communicate with each other. And what they then do is they develop an, a, a makeshift language. They... they um, um, combine aspects of their own languages, and we call that a pidgin. Uh, and this, historically, this would happen a lot in, in the colonial periods where enslaved individuals were working uh, in places for longer periods of time, and often these people had different language backgrounds. And so these things that we call pidgins would develop. Um, and it's already remarkable that people can do that. So it, it actually indicates that that even adults have some sort of capacity to construct maybe a simplified uh, communication system. But then th there was this remarkable discovery that if such people who speak a pidgin with each other actually form a couple and get children, uh, the child uh, might just be exposed to that pidgin. So then the question is, is the child going to simply repeat the pigeon form and mimic what the parents say? And there is this claim that, no, children go beyond the input that they get. They uh, uh, they construct a form of uh, language that we now call a Creole language that is richer in grammatical structure. And then the question is, where does that grammatical structure come from? Well. The, the nativist would say it comes from that innate system that drives the child to construct that. 
Now, I keep saying, uh, because when I discuss these arguments, I also uh, discuss criticism. I also discuss people who say, well, yeah, there could be a role for children. But on the other hand, if a pigeon is used, you know, for a long period of time, then even adults would contribute to making it richer. So uh, as with all the arguments, and that's why I say the book is an education to <laughs> being a part of that discussion, right? So I'm not pushing uh, the innateness hypothesis. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have a grand new theory about it. It's a, it's a book, it's a textbook, and I use it to uh, educate people to help people become a participant in that debate. Right, right. Yeah, all this is fascinating. So sort of um, to end where we started from, sort of so, so to go back to where we started from, uh, we started with the idea that like uh, this innate linguistic capacity is a defining aspect of our human nature, of our humanity. It's a central a central aspect of our human mind um, yeah. is that it allows us to have language. That is something you say in the book. So if this capacity is a major factor that helps distinguish human species from other species or other animals, uh, then um, can we think of specific reasons why humans possess this and not other animals? Uh, because animals also have communication systems. So yeah. so how is how are those different from human language in yeah. What could be the reason that only humans possess this sort of a uh, capacity? Yeah, yeah. So it is important to emphasize that all animal species have some sort of communication system, and some of those communication systems can be quite sophisticated. So we're not talking about certain things being simple and other things being complex. I mean, true, human language has a great deal of complexity. Nobody is going to deny that, but. Um, here is a thing that has long been established, uh, and you know this goes back to uh, folklore and stories that people would tell about other animals learning human language. Well, people have tried it. You know, can we teach uh, chimpanzees or dolphins or uh, other animals? Can we teach them human language? And it, you can use the, the, the animals that you think are the most smart, uh, sophisticated. I mean, chimpanzees are not that different from us anyway. So um, the, the bottom line is they can't do it. I mean, a, a chimpanzee can learn. Uh, well, at some point, people switched from spoken language to sign language because they thought, well, chimps can't do it because their articulatory apparatus is not evolved in the right way for that. So we switched to sign language. But so, you know, uh, animals, chimps, uh, even dogs, I mean, dogs in particular can learn human words, so to speak, and learn how to respond somewhat appropriately to a, to a spoken or signed words. Uh, um, chimpanzees can use signs, perhaps, in a way, but it has long been established that the, what they can do with these signs is doesn't come close, you know, to what even a two-year-old child can do. So they, you could say, my book is called A Mindful Language, you could say they don't have a mindful language. If we mean language, human language, right? Because people use that term also in general for any communication system. But if we say human language, they don't have a mind for human language. They have a mind for some other communication system that we cannot learn. We can study it, but we can't use it. So, you know, you could say every species uh, gets the communication system that they deserve or need. And that brings me to your question. Why would this specific system that we call human language have evolved in our species, in our ancestors. 
And of course, again, this is a much debated question because uh, we, we call that the question of language evolution, uh, which I talk more about a lot in the sequel book. So, so readers would have to wait for that. It's probably coming out end of end of this year. Um, so much debated uh, uh, topic because people always want to know where they come from and is this feature of language that we find so defining for our species, you know, when did it start? Uh, well, it's very difficult because it probably, it, it likely, it certainly started long before there was writing. And, you know, as people say, words don't fossilize, so you can't dig them up and see when people started using them for the first time. So it's it's a, it's a very much debated question, but it probably, so there's two camps, actually. Some people say, actually, Chomsky would say that, that what evolved for humans was just a fluke. It just happened. Some neural connection, uh, some mutation created a neural circuitry that that gave rise to this recursion property. And that, uh, so some people say it was just a fluke, but other people are different. They say, well, usually in evolution, what we see is that, that species develop traits and behaviors that, that contribute to their ways of dealing with the environments that the specific environment that they are exposed to so um it could be that um the our earliest earliest ancestors uh um benefited from uh collaboration and one could argue that language is an important feature of successful collaboration it's not watertight because there are other species that that collaborate to to find prey or to hunt but um i would say that um and it's it's probably too big of an issue um so maybe next year we have to talk about this again when that sequel book comes out yes of course <laughs> this is a small commercial for that book uh because it is very interesting and people can't let it go but it has to have something to do with particular needs uh, that arose in in the the way our earliest ancestors uh, lived, uh, collaborated, etc. So, uh, so in that sense, other species have communication systems that serve them well, uh, given the challenges that the environment poses for them. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very interesting subject, and and uh there are also regularly books that appear on this this issue of language evolution many people want to put in their two cents uh as as do i in that sequel book but uh it's it's very complex because essentially there is a lack of data <laughs> language emerged long ago before written record uh, and so how can you scientifically speak about the emergence of a capacity if you don't have direct data and so people appeal to what we call circumstantial data and and there but it's a whole further discussion that we probably don't have time for today <laughs> well thank you so much for joining us it was great talking to you and we'll definitely wait for the sequel book now um so it was great talking to you thank you thank you so much for joining us yeah well thank you for giving me the opportunity uh to talk about it uh,